we're going to be in Romans chapter 10, actually 9, verse 30, down through 10, verse 13, but I'm going to read for us uh, from chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses described in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Literally, believe unto righteousness. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved, or literally, unto salvation. Um, Let me mention some things about today's text, just as we get started. First, it is uh, very carefully constructed. Paul uses the word for the Greek word gar, to mark the logical progression of his argument nine times in the space of 13 verses. This passage is really closely knit. Second, the passage is the core of this section, 9 through 11. Some scholars have called chapter 10 an excursus, that is a long parenthesis, but it's the hinge on which chapters 9 through 11 turn, or say it's the pivot on which they depend. Next, it's helpful to think of the letter to the Romans as if it were a spiral staircase in a tall, 16-story building. As one mounts the staircase, he or she keeps coming across the same vertical axis, but always at a higher horizontal axis. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, let me try again. (laughs) Let me put it another way. In Romans, we keep coming around to the same themes, but our viewpoint continues to broaden as we go on. So let me give you an example. In chapter 1, 16 and 17, Paul introduces the theme of the righteousness of God, the theme of the entire book. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, he comes back around to that theme, only this time from a higher perspective in which we can see how Christ's sacrificial death fits into it. And now in chapter 10, he comes back to that theme again, but this time from a place where we can see that there's room for both Jews and Gentiles to experience it. Okay, so there's this spiral kind of of, of format to the book of Romans. Another thing, after chapter 5, this is really interesting, Paul stopped talking about justification. He dropped it like a hot rock. But at the end of chapter 9, the beginning of chapter 10, he picks it back up and uses that that, 
justification language with a vengeance. Four times in two verses in chapter 9, three times in three verses in the beginning of 10, and then one time each in verses 4, 5, 6, and 10. See, at, at the same time, though, he's dropped the word sin almost entirely. And, and that's odd because he used it dozens of times in chapters 3 through 8. And now he uses it only once, and that time in a quotation from the Old Testament. But see, he's following that spiral up. And right now he's gone past the vertical axis named labeled sin, and he's come back to the one labeled righteousness. Right? One last thing. And then we'll look at our text. In chapter 9, we looked at this last week, Paul boldly claimed that Israel's exclusion from the Messiah is the result of God working out his sovereign plan. The stress there was all on God's purpose. But in chapter 10, Paul plainly states that Israel's exclusion from the Messiah is the result of their own failure and self-centeredness. The stress here in chapter 10 especially is all on Israel's choice. That juxtaposition of divine sovereignty and human free will is utterly consistent with biblical teaching. In the Bible, it is not God's sovereignty or human free will. It's God's sovereignty and human free will. They don't contradict each other. To teach one to the exclusion of the other, or worse, to try to use one to disprove the other, is to depart from biblical teaching. People sometimes say that the Bible holds these two in tension. I would disagree. I think it holds them in partnership. We want to give priority to one or the other, but the Bible simply and forcefully acknowledges both. All right, our text. Paul begins this section not in chapter 10, but in chapter 9. Verse 30, we know he's beginning a new section because he's inserted one of his favorite markers, one of his favorite section intros. What shall we say then? And what we shall say is this, Israel is in trouble. It has been so focused in its pursuit of a law of righteousness, chapter 9, that it didn't see its Messiah tripped over him, the stone that causes people to stumble, verse 33, and never arrived at its destination. But the Gentiles, who weren't seeking righteousness, received it. They were granted citizenship status in the long-awaited kingdom. They were accepted by God into his people. Israel insisted on doing it, doing a relationship with God on its own terms, by works, chapter 9, verse 32, and not by faith, and so they missed the very thing for which God had been preparing them ever since the time of Abraham. They missed it and didn't even know they missed it. But just because they missed it is no reason to give up on them. Paul still prays for their salvation, chapter 10, verse 1, and acknowledges their genuine zeal for God, which is a good thing. Uh, By the way, during this historical period, from the time of the Maccabees through this time, the Jewish people highly valued zeal, religious zeal, and praise it extensively. And the New Testament praises it consistently. But, Paul says, their zeal is not according to knowledge. If Paul were writing today, I suspect he would praise the zeal of Islamic extremists, but would condemn their dreadful lack of understanding and the violence to which it's led. 
Here he acknowledges the Israelites' commendable zeal, but he says it's misplaced because of ignorance. Verse 3, let me give you a little translation. For being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They chose to do it their own way. That may work in some things. It doesn't work in this. Many years ago, my family and I spent a day at the Art Institute in Chicago, and we planned on driving to one of the western suburbs, really it was West Chicago, um, to spend the evening with Karen's brother, Mark, and his family. So Mark had given me directions from the Art Institute to his place. Uh, get on 55, go to 355, go west on 88, and on and on. And uh, when I looked at my Chicago map, I thought, that's a crazy way to go. We're going to be going all over the place to get up to his house. So I decided to establish my own way. And I left the Art Institute and I got on some street that was headed due west because Mark's house just pretty much lay due west of where we were. And pretty soon we were driving through some um, unpleasant neighborhoods. And it was a long time before we were driving out of them again. It took us like two hours to drive 38 miles. I'm, my brother-in-law was on the verge of sending out search parties. Well, Israel took its own way too, and God did send out search parties, the prophets, to direct them, but Israel wouldn't listen and insisted on going their own way. To this day, she's not arrived at her destination. But the Gentiles, who didn't know where they were going, have already arrived and been welcomed. And what was the difference? The Gentiles saw Jesus, believed him, and took their stand on him. While the Israelites did not believe him, didn't see him, and stumbled over him. The whole difference is Jesus. The long road of Jewish history, which Paul has been rehearsing in chapter 9, was all the time leading the Israelites to Messiah, Jesus. The law given through Moses was a sort of directions uh, meant to bring the Jewish people right to Messiah. Verse 4 makes that clear. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, when you read that, you need to know the end of the law is something like the end of the line on a train route. When you arrive at the end of the line, your reason for boarding the train has been fulfilled. But of course, the train doesn't cease to exist because of that, but its purpose has been fulfilled. The reason or end or purpose or goal for which God gave the law was always to bring people to Christ. But Paul believed that his fellow Jews had hijacked the law, had run it off the rails, and had failed to arrive at their destination. They had failed to arrive at Jesus. Many of the Jews of Paul's day assumed that salvation was theirs alone, righteousness was their property, and the Messiah was God's gift to them and no one else. The idea that God might be doing something bigger and had been doing something bigger ever since Abraham would have sounded to them, for lack of a better word, as unpatriotic. But Paul, himself a Jew, is telling his fellow Jews they've missed the point of their own story. They've missed their destination, and now they're lost because they've tried to do it their own way rather than submitting to God. When we come to verses 5 through 8, we come to a sermonette 
there's a technical title actually called a midrash based on Deuteronomy chapter 30. And it's all about DIY, do-it-yourself religion. Paul contrasts do-it-yourself religion, what the NIV calls the righteousness that is by the law, with the do-it-God's-way approach called the righteousness that is by faith. DIY religion is all about what you will do. God's approach is all about what he has already done. In Paul's day, and, and in the century leading up to it, many Jewish thinkers believed that God was waiting for the Jewish people to obey the law before he would send the Christ, the Messiah, to set things right. The Pharisaical movement came out of that kind of thinking. If they would just try harder, that's what they believed. Or if more people would just try, they could get out of this mess they were in. Of course, that kind of thinking led the pious people to despise the less pious people. They felt contempt for the uneducated who didn't know the law. They were ruining everything. And by the way, you can see that attitude and the outburst by a Pharisee in the Sanhedrin in John chapter 7. He, he just can't take it anymore and he yells, this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. At one time, Paul could have been that Pharisee saying that very thing. He shared that outlook. If we can just get people to do the law, why won't these people do the law? But now, in response to that kind of thinking, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30 about ascending into heaven and then he adds a parenthetical statement to bring Christ down. The idea, which Paul once championed, was we can bring the Messiah down to us if we can just get enough people to do the law. But he doesn't think that anymore. He knows better. He's already pointed out that even the most pious people fail at doing the law. In one of the earlier spirals around this subject... In chapter 2, Paul said, You, if you call yourself a Jew, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then in another spiral passage on the same topic, chapter 7, he admits that his former self, this Pharisee who despised people who didn't know or do the law, his former self had been a failure. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. I kept failing. Paul wanted his fellow Jews to know that trying harder was not the answer. It would never get them where they wanted to go. Remember chapter 9, verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, literally, not desiring, not running, but on the mercying of God. Paul was convinced that his fellow Jews had missed their destination because they missed their Messiah, Now they're riding the train of the law in circles and would continue getting nowhere until they stopped at Christ. I mentioned a moment ago how we got to the west suburbs by car, but we've also done that by train. You can take Amtrak from Battle Creek to Union Station in Chicago, but if you want to go to west Chicago, you have to get off of Amtrak and board the Metra. If you stay on Amtrak, you just won't get there because it doesn't go there. 
it's not that there's something wrong with Amtrak, but you've got to your station. You need to get off. Paul could see that his countrymen had, for the most part, failed to get off at their station. He knew that pleasing God is not a matter of doing some incredible feat. It's not a matter of ascending into heaven or descending into the abyss. The idea that you need to go somewhere and accomplish something, some labor of Hercules kind of thing, is just wrong-headed. You already have what you need. The word is near you, he says in, in verse 8, still quoting uh, this is still part of the Midrash. He's still quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And that word is the message of faith in Messiah Jesus that he and the other apostles have proclaimed. Paul, by the way, and we'll see this further in chapter 10 and especially in chapter 11, believed that his preaching and that of the other apostles, had, God had taken that into his story now. When we hear someone contrasting works of law with faith in Jesus, we're liable to think that the takeaway is something like this. Oh, then I don't need to do anything. I just need to believe. If you were to say something like that to the Apostle Paul, so, so I don't need to do anything, right? Just believe? He would wonder what you're talking about. He wouldn't track with you at all. Uh, he'd think, I was talking about faith in Jesus, so why is this guy talking about not doing anything? It's a non sequitur. It doesn't follow. See, we've come to think like this. Faith is the opposite of works, and works is the opposite of faith. Well, the opposite of works is doing nothing. Therefore, faith is the same as doing nothing. That is a gross distortion of the gospel that Paul preached. And the problem lies in what faith is assumed to be. If faith is merely agreeing that a truth claim is valid, like the truth claim that Jesus is God's son or that he died for our sins, then you can have faith and do nothing. But that's not what the Bible means, ever. When Jesus said in John 14, 1, you believe in God, believe also in me. He wasn't urging his disciples to give assent to a truth claim about his existence or his deity or his messiahship. He was imploring them to trust him. Trust me. Look at verse 9, which states the message of the faith that Paul and the early Christians proclaimed. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. It's one of the, the most succinct um, verses, passages about salvation in the Bible. Remember to whom Paul is writing. Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, in Rome. When he speaks of confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, he's talking about something more than reciting a religious creed. That wouldn't have even come into his mind. All around the vast Roman Empire, people were required yearly to present a sacrifice to Caesar, to kneel and confess, Caesar is Lord. If you failed to do that, and someone turned you in, you could get into trouble. If you refused to do that, you would get into trouble. And here's Paul telling Christians in Rome at the very heart of the empire to confess Jesus 
not Caesar, as Lord. To confess Jesus Lord is to acknowledge his right of rule over you and over the earth. It's to place him above all. If you confess Jesus Lord, you take your stand with him. Belief in Jesus is not about holding certain doctrines about him. People who believe in Jesus, they don't just hold certain doctrines, they hold Jesus. Or rather, he holds them. When you confess Jesus, Lord, you're leaving neutrality behind. You are choosing a side. That was as plain to Paul as anything could be. And so when he speaks of believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, we ought to suspect that there's more going on here than mere assent to the doctrine of the resurrection. God's man or woman or child believes that the one they confess Lord is alive. God raised him from the dead, and he's acting on behalf of his kingdom and his people right now. He's the rightful ruler of the earth, which he is planning to invade and make his own once again. In the meantime, the people who confess him Lord are his agents and his sworn representatives. See, here's what we need to get in our heads. God is not interested in religion as such. He's interested in his son and in his people and keeping his promises and making the world right. God is not impressed by religious scruples. He's impressed by people who love and serve his son, confess him Lord, and demonstrate loyalty to him. All right, so what do we get out of this passage? I think we get the idea that DIY religion is not and has never been good enough. I did it my way will not be the theme song of heaven, but the lament of hell. You don't get to decide what is satisfactory to God because God has already decided faith in and faithfulness to Jesus. We see further that faith takes us beyond what we believe to whom we believe. Now, that doesn't mean that what we believe is unimportant. It's very important. Wrong beliefs about Jesus make true belief in Jesus more difficult. But right beliefs about Jesus are simply not enough. They might make you right, but they can't make you righteous. It's Jesus who saves, not your ideas about him. So don't just say you believe in Jesus. Instead, confess him Lord. People often say, oh, yeah, oh, I believe, I believe. Well, good. But have you confessed Jesus Lord, the Lord who is alive and working? And if so, are you busy serving him? If you say, I don't really know how to do that, then get advice from a friend who's already living that way or talk with a pastor or an elder. One last thing about this, and then I have one more thing to say. Last week we saw how Paul retold the story of Israel, and we noticed how the action of the story kept narrowing. From all of Abraham's descendants, it narrowed to the line of Isaac. From all of Isaac's descendants, it narrowed to the line of Jacob. From all of Jacob's descendants, it narrowed to the faithful remnant. 
And then the action narrowed until it was found in one man, the man, the true Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. But since then, since the big bang that is the resurrection, the action has been expanding. First it was the 12, and then a few others, then the 70, then 500, 3,000, 5,000. Then it spread out to Samaritans, then to Gentiles, and now it includes even us. We're part of the ongoing story of God in the world if we confess Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, to be our Lord. That story is widened out, and it's now for everyone. That's the point. That's where this has all been building. Chapter 10, verse 12, there is no difference. It's the second time Paul said that. It's a spiral. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. All right, before I close, I want to make a couple comments about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You're aware of it? On Tuesday, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of a Catholic monk named Martin, Martin Luther, posting 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Posting something on the church door in a university town like Wittenberg, people did that all the time. Sometimes we, we don't realize that. that. That was common. It was a little like posting something on Facebook today. It invited comment, even debate. By the way, would Martin Luther have tweeted? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. But Martin Luther was not trying to start a revolution. He was trying to start a conversation, a conversation about something that needed to be changed, something that was bugging him, that he saw and it needed changing. That something had to do with the practice of selling papal indulgences, permission slips, if you will, for getting out of purgatory early. That is a vast um, oversimplification. And I could go on and talk to you about that. Martin Luther did not oppose indulgences theologically. He opposed what people were doing with them. And he was disgusted by certain priests who were hawking, that was his word, indulgences to poor families who could hardly put food on their table. He wasn't trying to start a revolution. He was trying to start a conversation. He was just trying to deal with a problem that dishonored the church that he loved and its leaders. But those leaders didn't feel dishonored by the problem. They should have, but they didn't. But they did feel dishonored by Luther. And so what began is a debate over one practice in the next three years snowballed into disagreements about the authority of the Bible, the priesthood of all believers, and the way of salvation. When, when Martin Luther saw the church needed to make changes, instead of just complaining about it, which I'm sure lots of people were doing, he wasn't the only one, but when he saw something was wrong, he did what was in his power to do to change it. And God used his humble effort in righting a wrong He used that effort to bless his church and change the world. And the thing about this whole story is we celebrate the Reformation, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, by the way, totally brilliant. Genius of a guy. Incredibly brave. But 
what we celebrate is the fact that God has never given up on his church, and he still hasn't. See, the church still needs and always needs reforming. Always. The reform doesn't happen because people set out to make reforms. Reform happens because people love the church of God and pray for it and obey God in doing the, their little part to make things right. But our little part, when God is involved, can change everything. All right, let's pray, and then I'm going to dismiss you this morning without a hymn, but I want to invite you. Maybe you can run out and get a cup of coffee. But I'm going to come over here to the piano, and, and maybe we're going to sing a few of those hymns from that Reformation time. If you want to join me, come on over, and we'll do that in about five minutes. Lord, thank you for including us in the story of what you're doing. Thank you that it's gotten bigger to include people like us who weren't even looking, but you found us. And now, Lord, we ask you to use us, our small efforts, our desire just to do what's right for the church we love. Use us for your great glory, in the name of your great Son, Jesus our Lord. Now stand with me for the benediction. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to the power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Amen.